Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll take a look at that beautiful fall weather that we're enjoying. We'll talk about sports and we'll see what's going on with those Wyoming Cowboys and also those Lady Riverside Rebel volleyball team. Also today we'll take a look at agriculture, kind of what's happening with our agricultural community. And finally today we'll talk about Eisenhower's 1919 road trip and the interstate highway system. Thanks for hopping on board. We hope you enjoy the show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather, we did have a cool down over the weekend with that uh, cool moisture we had, or cool weather and the moisture. It's kind of spotty in areas, but the week ahead looks just gorgeous. We've had these temperatures in the 60s, cooling down at night, definitely getting into fall weather. We'll slowly but surely start trending down, but right now we are taking advantage of every bit of this, getting a lot of stuff done. It's a big advantage right now for our beet farmers are right in the middle of their harvest. This weather's holding true for them. Let them get out in the fields, get those beets pulled, get that harvest done before any type of moisture comes. But right now, our Wyoming weather is just A-OK. Taking a look at Wyoming sports, the Wyoming Cowboys were in action last Saturday night at War Memorial in Laramie. As they took on San Jose State, they came out on the short end of a 33-16 game. San Jose State um, has a transfer, pretty elusive quarterback that uh, came in from Hawaii. And just a little note on that, that their quarterback had played for Hawaii last year and their last regular season game was at War Memorial as the Rainbow Warriors came out on top of the Cowboys. So he was familiar with the field and the stage. They had a good team. They had also a couple of transfers from Nevada, two big receivers that caused problems for the Cowboys all night long. So Cowboys are in action this week as they'll make their first road trip of the season as they take on New Mexico, the Lobos, in Albuquerque Saturday. That should be an interesting matchup, and we'll see where the Cowboys go from there. Also in high school sports, Thermopolis Bobcats, as I mentioned last week, they won number two. They are on a two-game winning streak. They defeated Pinedale, the Wranglers, on Friday night. They've got a tough one on Friday. The seventh is they take on the Lyman Eagles. They are the defending state champions. They'll have a tough, tough game there, and that's a long trip down to Lyman. So we'll report on that next week. Also talked about our Lady Rebels from Riverside High School. They were victorious in the Thermopolis Invitational. They won the championship game. They beat Saratoga in that championship match. They are continue on playing outstanding volleyball. They've got to close out their regular season, got a couple more weeks in this regular season, and then they'll start regional play in Lander. And then they, if they do qualify for state, they will head to the state tournament in Casper. So good luck to those Lady Rebels. Taking a look at Wyoming agriculture news today. We are getting into October, as I mentioned earlier, here in the Bighorn Basin area of Wyoming. And they would still be doing it down in the Torrington area. It'll be in the middle of a beet harvest. It is ongoing. It'll take place during the month of October, depending on how the weather 
maintains if this weather stays good they'll be able to get those beets out and get everything hauled to the factories for processing and get those fields ready so agriculture right now as far as on the farming side everything's going well as far as for our ranchers getting ready to start pulling cows off of that summer pastures getting them down to a wintering area it's in the process right now a lot of cows will start moving here as we get into october a lot of cows will be going into the feedlots be fed for the winter and with prices and everything where they are we'll continue on with their operations and it looks good right now as far as for prices cattle prices are about where they are numbers are have been staying pretty much steady i guess it's just going to be what happens with the economy moving forward but it's really a busy time right now for our agricultural community here in the state of wyoming as everybody's getting ready for winter weather ahead Today we want to take a look at Eisenhower's 1919 Road Trip and the Interstate Highway System by Lori Van Pelt from wyominghistory.org. And this was published on January 4th of 2018. On August 8th, 1919, young Lieutenant Colonel Dwight D. Eisenhower arrived in Cheyenne with a long line of military cars, trucks, and motorcycles. The Transcontinental Motor Truck Convoy entered the city on the Lincoln Highway during an evening thunderstorm. The soldiers had spent 11 hours on the road that day, traveling from Kimball, Nebraska to Cheyenne. Today, drivers on Interstate 80 can easily make the 66 miles between Kimball, Nebraska and Cheyenne in less than an hour. A few days before, on August 5th, after leaving North Platte, Nebraska, the daily convoy log noted that many of the trucks had to be pulled through a 200-yard stretch of quicksand, resulting in a delay of 7 hours and 20 minutes. A large, heavy truck called the Militor was able, after five unsuccessful attempts by other vehicles, to pull out one of the lighter trucks that had sunk into the sand deep enough to cover both right rear rails and its differential. The purpose of the cross-country trip never attempted before was to determine the condition of the roads nationwide. The Cheyenne State Leader article explained that the 72 vehicles and personnel show signs of the road, but both were eloquent evidence of the efficiency of the United States effort that helped win World War I the year before. The nation roads and effort to improve them had long been a concern. Since the late 19th century, writer-author Sarah Laxkow, the Good Road Movement has been advocating for upgrades to the dirt and gravel tracks that connect cities to one another and forming an association to finance and build them. Author Tom Lewis traces the Good Roads Movement to Albert A. Pope, a Union Civil War veteran who, in 1878, created a safety bicycle. Pope organized the League of American Wheelmen, which advocate better roads through a variety of efforts, including financing road engineering courses at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. By 1900, according to Lewis, 300 companies produced more than a million bicycles per year, and the good road movement was sweeping the country. In 1913, the Lincoln Highway, one of the earliest transcontinental highways for automobiles, was dedicated. A 3,400-mile route across 13 states from New York to San Francisco. For many years, however, it remained a route only. The roads had varied widely in their quality. By 1916, in July, Woodrow Wilson signed the first federal aid Road Act into law. The act created the Bureau of Public Roads and allocated $75 million for the next five years. 
with federal funds to pay states half the cost for building or improving federal roads. At the time, there were more than 21 million horses, 3.5 million cars, and 250,000 trucks in the United States, according to Lewis. During World War I, troops drove new army trucks and material from factories in the Midwest to eastern ports where they could be shipped to Europe. In December of 1917, the first convoy took three weeks to drive from Toledo, Ohio to Baltimore. Other factors also led to push for better roads. Trucks were convenient, better able to go more places, were gradually becoming competitive with trains as a way to move freight. But trucks weighed much more than automobiles, and their tires were solid rubber. Paved roads crumbled under their wear. By 1919, the BPR had spent only about half a million of the 75 million allotted, and only 12 and a half miles of road had been constructed. The members of the convoy that Eisenhower traveled with in the 1919 discovered the nation's roads, especially those west of Nebraska, were in rough condition. Soldiers faced mechanical breakdowns, quicksand, and in Utah and Nevada, rationed food and water. They traveled more than 10 hours a day, an average speed of about 5 miles per hour. On some days, they covered as little as 3 miles. The convoy left Washington, D.C., July 7, 1919, to head for San Francisco. The caravan stretched for 3 miles. Eisenhower and his friend, Major Cerno Brett, have served as tank officers together during World War I. They were among the 24 officers and 258 enlisted men on the journey, accompanied by a 15-piece band courtesy of Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. In the Rockies of Wyoming and Utah and across Nevada, they went where few automobiles had gone before, Lewis writes. The convoy log of the journey between Kimball and Cheyenne noted the effort of altitudes exceeding 6,000 feet, very noticeable in connection with the starting and operation of motors. On August 8th, Governor Robert Carey and a host of other dignitaries met the convoy at Tiny Hillsdale, Wyoming, 17 miles east of Cheyenne, to welcome them to the state. A Wild West show was held in their honor at the Frontier Park in Cheyenne. While on the show, the soldiers stopped at Fort Russell for a meal and an opportunity to bathe and rest. A dance was held in honor of the visitors. In appreciation of the distinctive welcoming, the leader report explained that the convoy would carry cloth posters proclaiming, Stop your roaming, try Cheyenne, and declaring that Wyoming was spending $7 million on roads. Crossing Wyoming, the convoy encountered daily breakdowns and obstacles. Two-hour delays to repair mechanical problems were not unusual. The August 14th entry in the log noted that rough roads after departing Tipton Station, west of Rollins, early in the morning. Bad sandy trails, very rough with drop-offs over shelves of rocks, just below the surface. Seven miles west, a big sandy stretch was negotiated more easily by the FWDs than the other make. Eisenhower noted in a November 19th report about the trip that in addition to the Militor, which once pulled four trucks at one time, four-wheel drives, or the FWDs, two-wheel rear-drive vehicles, and Mack trucks with chains were among the vehicles that made the trip. Because the vehicles were operating at different speeds, keeping the convoy information was troublesome. 
Ike explained that in a one and a half ton Packard truck, it performed in remarkable fashion throughout the trip. Much of their route across southern Wyoming was not on roads at all, but on the old Union Pacific right of way, abandoned after 1899 when the railroad had straightened its routes and improved its grade. The old routes were very windy, soft, and sandy with wobbly, rickety bridges and culverts that the truck broke through. And although the soldiers were fetid in town at various stops along the way, a Red Cross canteen offered refreshments in Rock River, and the people of Medicine Bow put on a street dance. A daily routine was wearing. Dust choked up the carburetors, and unrelenting, bleak terrain was hard on the men. The intensely dry air, absence of green trees and vegetation, the log noted, in its description of the stress between Point of Rocks and Medicine Bow, and parched appearance of the landscape exerted a depressing influence on the personnel. The convoy left Evanston, Wyoming at 12.30 p.m. August 17th and crossed into Utah that afternoon. Eisenhower joined the convoy partly for a lark and partly to learn. He wrote many letters later about the trip. Ike recalled the time in Wyoming with fondness. His wife, Mamie, and her family met the truck train in the middle of Nebraska and traveled with them as far as Laramie, Wyoming. Ike recounted these stories in his 1967 book, At Ease, Stories I Tell Friends, in a chapter entitled, Through the Darkest America with Truck in a Tank. Eisenhower and his friend Major Brett enjoyed playing some practical jokes along the way, especially enjoying the surprises they foisted on Easterners, like warning them of a hostile Indian attacks in western Wyoming. No such attack actually happened. Of course, another time, Ike aimed the pistol in the general direction of the North Pole and fired to shoot a jackrabbit that he had shot hours before and that Brett posed beside a bush away from the road. Brett, to impress the Easterners, proclaiming that, that he was an excellent shot like Ike was, holding the dead rabbit by its ears at a distance to disguise its stiff condition. Hijinks aside, the 62-day journey stayed with Ike for years and impressed upon him the need for good highways throughout the nation. In 1921, the Federal Highway Act increased funding for federal roads to $75 million per year. Lewis explained that by the end of the 1920s, the BPR had spent nearly $750 million for roads. The 1921 Act, he writes, made the real idea of a national road system. Each state would designate 7% of its roads to be linked with others in other states. In the 1920s, the numbering system for U.S. highways began. A portion of the Lincoln Highway from Pennsylvania through Wyoming became U.S. 30. In 1922, the Bureau of Public Roads commissioned John J. Pershing, who had been a son-in-law of Wyoming U.S. Senator Francis E. Warren, draw a map that could be used for construction of roads and also for the purpose of clarifying which roads would be most important for defense if the nation became involved in a war. The Pershing map became the first official topographical map of the United States. Pershing had commanded the American Expeditionary Forces on the Western Front during World War I. He also became a mentor to a number of other illustrious United States generals, including Dwight D. Eisenhower. In the late 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt posed routes for a transcontinental system of roads to the chief of the BPR. But World War II and then the Korean War interrupted the plans. Lewis 
explains that the 1953 was a turning point in America's transportation history. Eisenhower, who had served as Supreme Commander of Allied Forces during World War II, became the first Republican president elected in two decades, and he brokered an armistice in Korea, thus enabling the United States to return to full peacetime production. More people could purchase cars than before. Between 1950 and 1960, Lewis is writes, the number of families owning automobiles increased from 60% to 77%. During the same decade, the number of railway passenger cars decreased from 37,359 to 25,746. Since 1936, passenger operations on the railroad had made a net profit only during the war when the government had curtailed automobile travel. By the time he became President of the United States in 1953, Eisenhower had driven on the German Autobahns and had appreciated the ease and speed of travel on those highways. The 1919 transcontinental trek across the United States convinced him that the nation needed better roads. He wrote, The old convoy had started me thinking about a good two-lane highways, but Germany had made me see the wisdom of a broader ribbon across the land. Lewis explained, After VE Day, when he traveled the Autobahn, Eisenhower learned firsthand the value of a modern highway to defense. By the time Eisenhower became president, the nation felt itself under threat of nuclear attack. An interconnected highway system could facilitate routine travel and could provide an efficient escape route in the event of an attack. On June 29, 1956, Congress authorized the National Interstate and Defense Highway Act of 1956, approving $25 billion for the completion of 41,000 miles of highway within a decade. The interstate was the largest public work project approved in the nation's history. The Bureau of Public Roads eventually became part of the Federal Highway Administration, formed on April 1, 1967, as part of the U.S. Department of Transportation. The Pennsylvania Turnpike, a 162-mile stretch completed in 1940, became part of Interstate 70 and 76, one of the earliest interstate highways. However, in 1956, Missouri claimed to have been the state with the first contract signed, and Kansas claimed status as the first state to begin paving. Nebraska, on October 17, 1974, became the first to complete all of its interstate highway systems. In the late 1950s, the interstate was planned to run through a 77-mile section of Wyoming between Laramie and Walcott Junction. Despite objections from locals, Bureau of Public Road officials determined to place the highway closer to Elk Mountain on a more direct route rather than follow the path of U.S. Highway 30, the Lincoln Highway, where it swings north through Rock River and Medicine Bow. Historian John Wagoner writes, After three years of debate and after receiving no federal support for locating I-80 along U.S. 30, state highway officials accepted defeat. On May 15, 1959, the Wyoming State Highway Commission approved the direct route. All that they could do was delay construction while the rest of I-80 was completed across the state. Under pressure from the BPR, after a seven-year delay, a construction finally began in the summer of 1966. The stretch from Laramie to Walcott opened October 3, 1970. Wagoner writes, On October 7th, an early season storm caused havoc for drivers on the new highway, just as Wyomingites warned it would happen. It took only four days for I-80 to become the Snow Chi Minh Trail, a Vietnamese-era nickname, though fading, it is still in use. The section has suffered a high accident rate and frequent wintertime road closures ever since it opened. Nationally, the interstate highway system also took longer to complete than had been planned. 
Author Tom Lewis explains that it took 40 years, not 13 as specified by the legislation President Eisenhower signed in 1956 to build the interstate highway system. In 1991, the interstate, according to Lewis, the largest engineered structure in the world, was named the Dwight D. Eisenhower System of Interstate and Defense Highways. On September 12, 1991, Interstate 90 between Seattle and Boston, Massachusetts became the final coast-to-coast interstate highway completed. Today, the interstate system consists of 47,856 miles of completed highway. In a term of $2,016, the cost of construction was approximately $526 billion. Another outstanding story from wildhistory.org. And it's pretty amazing with Eisenhower's involvement when you start thinking about these roads that we have in our country presently. I just got back from a trip where I was on interstate systems, what it has done for our country. The amount of money we spent, it is definitely money well spent and, and not much compared to what we are spending today. Thanks everyone for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed our show. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming here at Let's Talk Wyoming, your everything Wyoming podcast.